This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome back to the Nevers Podcast. My name is Chirag and I'm joined by my co-host Tyg. Unfortunately, Laura couldn't make it today, but we're thrilled to have a special guest joining us, Tanisha from Show Talk Podcast. Tanisha is a fellow podcaster and a big fan of the Nevers, so we're excited to have her here to share her insights uh, with us. Welcome to the show. Can you, can you introduce yourself to a little bit about who you are? Hi, I'm Tanisha. I host Show Talk Podcast. Uh, I am just a fellow show watcher. I love anything, mostly with like supernatural elements, sci-fi elements, a lot of Marvel and DC. That's me. A lot of you'll find if you listen to any of my episodes, it's mostly those kind of categories. And so the Nevers fit right in there. And I've loved it since the first episode. And yeah, I'm just here to talk about it so that more people are interested in it because it was a travesty that we lost it at the second part. But hey, I'll keep talking about it until a miracle happens and maybe we'll get a season two or something. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's going to happen. If enough of us keep talking about it, eventually our voices will reach a crescendo to penetrate the right ears, hopefully. So same question to you, Tyg. This is your first time joining us on the Nevers podcast discussing uh, the Nevers. What what are some of your favorite characters from the show? What is your favorite aspect of the show and what do you enjoy about it? It's kind of funny. I've recorded many, many episodes of the Nevers, but never actually recorded an episode of the Nevers podcast where we talk about an episode of the Nevers. It's vaguely <laughs> ironic. But no, um, yeah, I, mean, I really, really, really loved those first six episodes. Like, I have many feelings about them. <laughs> I, obviously, uh, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, Penance and Amalia are just, they're just such a classic Whedon double act. I love everything about their interactions and their characters. Uh, ben Mundy is great. Obviously, I love The Beggar King. If you've seen any of the episodes I've on, I was very excited for The Beggar King. And, you know, he lived up to my hopes and dreams so that's good and like things i mean there aren't really any characters on this show that i don't like even the ones you're not meant to like you know kind of edmund haig lord masson have aspects to them that i enjoy watching and they're not good people but they're all great characters so it's you know i just i love all of it i i loved it every second of those first six episodes and that just you know as tanisha pointed out that made it so much harder when the show inevitably took the Whedon route and we lost it and then we've got these six episodes but it's well when we can get into that later but it it doesn't quite feel the same but yeah um yeah yeah maybe my favorite aspect of the show was the show I loved it great hook and uh surprise Claudia Black can't hate any show that surprise Claudia Black Surprise, Claudia Black. Yeah, I mean, it, everything you said, I totally agree with. Every single character was compelling. And now that you mention, you know, it taking the weed in route, it feels like a lot of people say a common theme in all of these shows is like redemption or or uh, the empowering of the disenfranchised or, you know, any number of themes 
really it it feels like at this point the predominant theme of uh the Whedon versus cancellation because it feels like like you can expect an abrupt ending either of a character's life or of the TV show's life yeah. it it just feels like it's 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 interesting and a little bit tragic that this is likely the last part of the nevers we're going to get but uh you know you got to enjoy what you got this is true miss adapt you look very fine i think so too okay so let's remind everybody who's listening to connect with us on social media you can follow on facebook instagram and youtube at HBO The Nevers and on Twitter at HBO The Nevers and at The Nevers Podcast without an A. Podcast without an A. Uh, so if you have any thoughts, suggestions, or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at uh, the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. And lastly, if you enjoy it, leave us a rating and review. Your feedback helps us improve and reach a wider audience. Okay, so. Now we're ready to discuss, this is episode seven, uh, the first of part two of the first season. Uh, it was a bit tricky to access. I don't know how it was for you guys. Did you catch it on Roku or perhaps Tubi? No, I was looking for it all over Tubi, and I thought when it was announced that it was going to be on Tubi that it would stay on, like the first six episodes, but I couldn't find a singular trace of it. And even looking online, they only had like past articles from like mid-February about the last six episodes, but nowhere where you could find it. So you could only find it on like pirated sites or something like that and i was just like that makes no sense because it's such a good show and then you like lose access to like the great ending that it could have it just drove me insane yeah i was in a very similar situation uh tubi and roku don't exist over here in the uk when we're permanently stuck in 1980 <laughs> so um i had to take other means to watch it and uh, so what's what's next on the discussion docket today <laughs> <laughs> wow let's let breeze, breeze past that quickly yeah no i i also had to get some bootleg nevers in this prohibition era of hbo max purging content um uh yeah i i, I think it was it was really weird that on tubi they were live streaming all of the new episodes as a binge so it was one episode after another uh in the middle of the day it just it felt like they were getting rid of it which is unfortunate hopefully it'll be streaming somewhere soon that's not to be i feel like it should stream somewhere soon at least all together because you can find the first six episodes anywhere you can find it on amazon you can find it even even on tubi so the fact that it doesn't have the last six just doesn't make sense at all i guess you could say it's not meant to be (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah and considering literally every other thing whedon has ever done is on disney plus i'm surprised they haven't just you know thrown out i mean it's it's not like the rights are going to cost a lot to pick up just you know chuck roku a tenner and just get all six to get all 12 episodes maybe it's because the last six ended up a little bit too r-rated for for streaming services <laughs> yeah there is a difference from like that. the first six to the last six so maybe i'm glad it's not just me that noticed that yeah i was gonna say cover that later 
So, uh, do you want to get into the recap of the show? Yeah, let's see. It's been a, it's been a while. We might have forgotten what happened in the in the first part. So, a little refresher before we dive into the new episode. We can catch up on what happened in the world of the Nevers thus far. So, previously on the Nevers. I'm imagining there's going to be a a nice sound effect. Here. <laughs> yeah. The series begins with a mysterious event in Victorian-era London that gives certain people supernatural abilities. These people are known as the Touched. We meet our two main characters, Amalia True and Penance Adair, who have been who have become friends and are now working together to protect and assist the Touch. Throughout the first six episodes, Amalia and Parent Penance face various challenges, only about 45 to 50 percent of which are their own fault, which is actually a pretty good ratio for a Whedon lead. They try to navigate their way through a society that fears and shuns the touch. They are hired by a wealthy benefactor to investigate a new power source that could have catastrophic consequences and must race to save a young girl who's been kidnapped by a dangerous group seeking to eliminate the touch. As the city reels from a catastrophic event, Amalia and Penance must find a way to keep the touch safe and uncover the source of the disaster. They also confront the truth about the origins of the Touched, which leads to a dangerous confrontation with a powerful figure. Meanwhile, the Touched face their own challenges as they deal with discrimination and violence from society and must navigate a perilous journey to safety. Throughout the first six episodes, the show explores themes of power, identity and societal struggle, while delving into the characters' backstories and relationships. Which sums up just about every show Joss Whedon has ever made. But particularly in this case. Good point. Here's a brief summary. Uh, So in the aftermath of the attack, Edmund Haig receives numerous calls on his rotary phones. So, uh, sorry, this is, this is the, this is the new episode we're now doing a recap of. So Edmund Haig, he gets a bunch of calls on his, on these rotary phones. Penance and Bonfire dig up the body of a robo-soldier. Amalia is snooping around Lord Masson's mansion. We have Mundi telling the chief of police that Malady's still alive, um, but is threatened and ex- the, with the exposure of his private life, right? He's blackmailed. Uh, and then an earthquake rocks London, and then we have Amalia believing that these are signs that the aliens are beneath the city and emerging. As Amalia and Penance examine the robotic soldier's body, Penance reveals that Amalia is from the future to all the orphans waiting. But Amalia brushes them off as she gets war flashbacks to her time as Zephyr. Augustus plans to reveal his touched status to Hugo. Lord Masson catches his maid stumbling into his deceased daughter's bedroom and orders her to leave. Amalia, Penance and Cousins dissect the robot and find a gear with Chinese characters on it that leads them to a clock manufacturer. Myrtle tries to tag along, but the trio turns her away. Despite being turned away, Myrtle still takes one of Penance's electric umbrellas and leaves. She is followed by a black cloaked figure, who later turns out to be Lucy. Mundy interrogates Hugo and about Effie Boyle, and Lavinia learns of Amalia's involvement with the aliens. Amalia and Penance find um, a room full of phones with Haig's name on them. One which rings, and Amalia answers it, and the voice on the other end knows that she's from the future, saying, Did you think you were the only one who hitched a ride? That was pretty creepy. 
Uh, and then the two women are then attacked by a robotic dog, and Amalia is seriously injured, and they but they manage to defeat it. And then Haig returns. He finds the house burned down. The phone rings again. But this time, the voice was not coming from the receiver. It was coming from Malady. This episode was written by Zoe Dennis and directed by Andrew Bernstein. Uh, okay, so now that we've got the recap out of the way. So who among us has watched all of the six final episodes so far? No, not yet. I've only watched episode seven so far, so I'm trying to keep everything fresh as we keep going throughout the season. Slowly, I guess. Uh, yeah, I've seen seven, eight, and nine, but then had to take a bit of a break. So I'll now I'll, I'll probably rewatch the episodes I've watched and then watch the episodes as we discuss them, so that they're fresh in my mind, so that I don't have to read our recap to remind myself of what happened <laughs> right. in the episode that I've just watched. <laughs> Okay, that's good. At the bare minimum, we've all seen this episode yes. that we're currently yeah. talking about. Oh, yes. Okay. And it was a great episode. That's a prerequisite. It was, it was a good episode. For a comeback episode, it was a good episode. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, I guess this is where we kind of dig into our thoughts about it. I, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like the ending of part one was very kind of triumphant, right? Even though they both of their missions kind of failed, they were still like at the end of part one. Amalia was it's like it was it was dawn. It was bright outside. The sun was rising. Birds were chirping, and she like finally reveals her real name to Penance. It, it's it's like the truth comes out at the very end that uh, you know I'm I'm actually from the future and all all that kind of stuff. You know, really, now that I think of it, the entire last episode of part one was about revelation. Like, immediately, we're smacked in the face with revelation when we open on this sci-fi, like, future world that we have never seen before. It's like the truth is revealed to us immediately. And that whole episode is about the truth coming out. And then we start with this episode, and I feel like everything kind of gets forgotten and regresses because she's like, she doesn't want to tell any of the other people about anything anymore. And she's, her PTSD is even worse. And, you know, she's even more, she has more walls around her. So it, it felt like she kind of shut down again at the beginning of this episode. I totally agree. Yeah. It it felt like, I mean, it was a, it was a good episode, but it did feel like it, it, it felt like the episode felt like it had to retcon a lot of what happened in specifically episode six, but also a bit of episode four and five, just to kind of give themselves a bit more room to go in the direction they clearly wanted to go in with Amalia, rather than the direction that the prior season had set up for her to go in. So she's referred to being, as you said, being very closed off, you know, torn apart by PTSD secretive and kind of all the things she was in episodes kind of one two and three and not so much the growth we saw in four five and six yeah i mean that just might be a function of how difficult it is to leave a cliffhanger and then pick right up from that as opposed to like it, it, like i don't i don't underestimate the the herculean writing task it must have been so do you guys think it, it holds up to the Pro previous episodes is it a smooth transition no 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 <laughs> <laughs> no hard no 
Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. The past few years, of, particularly for Whedon, but for a number of other sort of big creatives have been quite rocky. There's been a lot of people who've been pushed off their thrones. And it feels like the immediate reaction from everyone is always, oh yeah, like, sure, they were, you know, they, they were as good as we said they were from all the years up until this year. But they, they actually weren't that as, as involved as you thought they were, as we said they were up until now. Actually, they were really, they weren't really part of it. I saw this a lot with, kind of, with Buffy, especially. A lot of writers who refuse to mention their names like, oh, you know, he wasn't even that involved. A lot of the kind of the token weed and humour that you all, you know, fell in love with in that show that was a running vein through everything he made. A lot of that wasn't actually him. He would just show up every so often, pitch a couple of lines, move a few things around, and then he'd leave. Like, a lot of the main body of the work was done by other people. And they were saying this is like it was an insult. And I was sitting there thinking, I mean, yeah, that's what a showrunner does. That's their job. It's like a head chef doesn't cook every dish themselves they don't cut every vegetable themselves they stay back they watch what's going on and when they see something they think is wrong they swoop in they fix it and then they leave and it really felt like that's what's that touch is what this back half of the season for me has been missing there's been a lot of moments for me like a lot of lines that i don't really like a lot of character moments that for me felt out of character based on what we saw in the first six episodes and it just feels like it hasn't had that presence that, you know, the, the kind of a showrunner, as it were, to just be like, OK, we need to keep this on the straight and narrow. Like, you know, this is fine, but maybe, you know, deliver that line a little bit differently or maybe move that line to here, change your reaction a bit to kind of just give it all a unified feel. It, it feels like someone else trying to make a second half of a season that they weren't involved in the first one, because that's exactly what's happened. I mean, yeah, it, it it feels off. It's just there's a, a dodgy feeling for me for this whole back half. Weirdly enough, I only like felt that way character wise with Amalia and maybe Inspector Lundy or Mundy, just because the way that they like Mundy's interaction with Hugo in the first ep- in first episode of seven, um, it was a, like a little different, and we were kind of maybe getting a background for him at the start of this season. Um, so maybe we were trying to get like a softer side of him, which did grow a little bit after the first half of season part one. Um, but Amalia was probably the most different out of. Like everyone, I thought Penance pretty much stayed the same as her character. Um, who else? Did we, we didn't really see Malady at all this first episode. Myrtle is creating a new version of herself that we didn't see. So I think everyone's just trying to make like a their own arc story. I kind of, I don't know. You have to wonder how much of it is the lack of kind of a firm hand on the tiller mm. and how much of the character changing is arcs that were planned out to take place over three or four seasons mm-hmm. now having to be truncated into three or four episodes, mm-hmm. which is never going to pay off well. But it is, yeah, it is just, it's a little jarring and I wasn't a fan. Yeah, the compression is real. Mm. It's a very Game of Thrones season, <laughs> season eight. eight. 
Oh, please don't bring that up again. <laughs> oh, sorry. That that's that's our PTSD as yeah. TV watchers. We have random flashbacks of seeing Daenerys uh, not get the throne. Ruin her entire I'm character. Still sad about that. <laughs> I was just thinking about something you just said, Tanisha, about Myrtle um, creating a new self for herself. Mm. I, f- I feel like that's interesting because clearly, like, she wants to be a part of the job. She wants to help Amalia and Penance, but she's too, she's infantilized by them and, and doesn't really have purpose. And I feel like she's the one character whose superpower really is kind of an inhibition it it's kind of less a gift and more a curse because she can't really communicate she's the tower of babel no one understands her and she doesn't understand anyone and it's socially isolating so i was just thinking that it's interesting that the one character who witnesses myrtle killing that girl by accident is lucy because lucy's the same right Lucy also, her power is more of a curse than a gift. And Lucy accidentally killed someone. And it's interesting that they're taking Myrtle in a Lucy direction. This kind of persecutorial suffering that she's going to potentially go through. Well, that that would be interesting, too, because in the beginning of the episode, like before Myrtle goes out, she kind of puts on a costume as if like a combination of both Penance and Amalia so if she does go the Lucy route then we'll kind of see like the removal of that costume and like a gaining of Lucy kind of and how she's going to use her touch as something either I don't know more aligned with Lucy or more aligned with Amalia but with Amalia being as PTSD ridden right now and a little bit crazy and a little standoffish they kind of balance each other so I think Penance will probably be Penance is like the angel on like Amalia's shoulder which will probably be like the angel of Myrtle's shoulder at the same time but if Lucy is also considered like the devil kind of touched of everyone because of what she did and her betrayal and her power and like what it stands for then it'll be interesting to see which route Myrtle goes to, specifically now after what happened to Lucy now that she took Myrtle's place. Mm. There's a lot of uh, potential for long-running stories there that I hope <laughs> yeah. they'll make in the most of in the four episodes. episodes they have remaining. <laughs> Speaking of, um, the show does sort of feel like it's shifted from quite introspective, nuanced, character-focused storytelling to a more overarching action-oriented approach do you like am i was i the only one that saw that do you guys agree with me and are you in favor of the more sort of i, I don't want to use this as a pejorative but it is just the best thing of the more kind of marvel style of storytelling <laughs> they're moving into or do you prefer keeping it the way it was before well, I do. I do love the action aspect of it. It's just sometimes you have to consider when it's a little bit too much. Like there are times like when like sometimes I felt Amalia's flashbacks were like not the best placed and kind of like went a little bit too long. Um, so it was just like, 
okay, like I'm over this part of it. Like I'm over like this action based part of it. Like let's actually, if we're going to be putting so many stories all in at um, a specific time, like let's actually like take time and go into those stories. So while we have those like six episodes, we can know what's going on. But if we put too much action into it, we're going to lose a lot of like grasps of that. So we won't really know like what's the end goal once we get to the end of part two. And it might leave us with another cliffhanger if we spent all that time with action based (laughs) instead of like storytelling based although it did keep things like pretty interesting though like when like just watching the episode there was never a dull moment so i'll give it that um but when they want to slip into like romance parts of it with like penance and uh Hugo's friend. What's his name? There you go. (laughs) So when they want to slip in like the romance part of it, I'm like, we don't have time for that. We have a whole story to tell. So (laughs) I I think that kind of like takes away with the whole thing. So if we're putting so much action into it, it kind of just takes away a lot of the story time. And we only have so many episodes. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't into the whole dog fight, the, the robo dog. It just felt like Transformers, <laughs> like this. It's a metal CGI dog, and she was having PTSD flashbacks while she was fighting the dog. The so I didn't understand the relationship between those two things. I I understood it when it was like when she was like finding out the door. You know, like when we saw it was like the color of the door and it was the the door handle. Then we found like her PTSD was combining with her being able to see the future. So we, we saw like a reason for it after a while. So it was her not dealing with things and also like finally knowing the truth about herself and telling people the truth about herself. So that also probably triggered a lot of her PTSD as well. And like having to interact with the Galanthe last part and then knowing that she's like feels like everything like that um so now that she has to deal like with everything the flashbacks when it's like fighting scenes or when she should be focusing i i think it was more as a place like she's failing altogether because her flashbacks are happening in like inconvenient times and everyone can see it now like penance sees it and even myrtle saw it a little bit so now they have to like keep an eye on her and and see her as like a fragile person and she's trying to be strong that's a yeah good point mm. that's a good point yeah it does all feel a little bit kind of um end of season six buffy when she's got the um, the potentials with her and she's trying to kind of rally the troops and keep everyone safe but they all start kind of second guessing her mm-hmm. decisions and then there's you know uh, faith playing, playing faith <laughs> and they kind of it all, it all takes that route i'm wondering if they're setting up a similar path for her in this where she's going to start making more kind of increasingly more and more questionable yeah, decisions yeah. and i imagine the the faith role will either be taken it won't be penance penance loves her I'm wondering if possibly it'll be um, Bonfire because she's she, like she's a leader yeah. as well, very charismatic character and actress. I could see her being like, "Well, how about instead of doing your dumb plan, we do my plan?" That's I mean, awesome. didn't that happen with Bonfire and Melody? Like, didn't like Bonfire start questioning a lot of Melody's choices um, towards the end before she switched over? And then you also have to think in mind at the beginning of the episode when they're starting the whole like 
again, the action based, like looking into like where the house is coming from. Bonfire does mention why does Amalia get to do all the interesting things and she's left behind. And then she has that whole conversation later on about how she's more of a leader and not a follower. So who knows if there is going to be like a split power struggle between all of them. Exactly. And it's really interesting because Bonfire is kind of, she's, she's like, um, uh, she's like a mercenary kind mm-hmm, of character, mm-hmm. which precludes generally like righteousness or attachment or I guess, but I guess, and I'm, I apologize, but I keep going back to Firefly as a touchstone when I discuss anything involving this show. But in, in Firefly, the whole journey of the show was really watching like these cold mercenary smuggler types go from not caring about anything but themselves to caring about something greater than themselves. So maybe Bonfire is supposed to just start doing things for money, but eventually she truly cares about the touched in a way that Amalia even doesn't. That would be a great arc. I would watch that arc. I have one more question for you guys about Amalia. What do you guys think about the fact that she uses pain as a coping mechanism um, to deal with her PTSD. Cause I noticed every time she had those flashbacks, she was doing like, I don't know, scratching her wrist or there was this one moment where she caresses like a boiling hot yep. pot as she's having a flashback. And I, th- I thought that was such a beautiful character moment because it's it's like the pain is a self-soothing technique to deal with whatever she's going through. Well, before she had the drugs, right? So that was kind of her her go-to um to stop with like right. the pits. It was the drugs and she doesn't really have that now. I mean, they have opium of course in that time frame, but she's trying to be a better version of herself, I feel like, at least now that she has like this second chance to like help the touched and like save who she couldn't save before so she can't really turn to those options so right now pain is her her grounding Mm, yeah yeah. and it's interesting that penance just like her vibe feels like the opposite of inflicting pain on yourself it's inflicting love on yourself um is her character and she becomes the ultimate grounding for Amalia at the very end with that really touching like pep talk of just do your job. You know, you're a yeah. soldier, uh, get, get to work. And I, I thought that, that was I, the I really scene in the episode. best scene in the episode by a country yeah. mile for me. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if you guys noticed that the musical score has taken on a more prominent role in the episodes with a heightened presence throughout compared to the episodes in the first half of the season. What did you guys think about that? Uh, I couldn't tell if that was intentional or just bad <laughs> music mixing. Cause I've watched quite a few shows where the sound mixing has been a little bit dodgy. Uh, so I figured it was that. But I mean, I, I had noticed that there was the music was getting quite loud, but I thought that was just sort of a I, wa- I wonder if it's because during the first half, the the musical elements or like the focus was more Mary and we don't have Mary in the second half. So now they have to add like another element to like increase 
the mood of the season as we go on. Um, like there was a lot of it when we were getting to know Dr. Haig, like in the beginning, had like a little somber music in the background of everything. And then a little bit more, I don't know, it, maybe it's like a gradual thing throughout the episodes, but there is there is a, a big difference compared to the first half of the season. Yeah, there is, there is, a, but there's kind of a symmetry to, I don't remember if the first half opened with Mary, um, but the second half kind of opens with mm-hmm. Haig's mother singing. Yeah. It, so it's kind of like the, the opposite, the, like the opposite side of the same coin where Mary singing is an indication of beautiful, something beautiful. And Haig's mother singing is kind of like evil. Yeah, Unless I'm out. misconstruing her. No. No, I don't think you are. It almost reminds me of the movie Insidious. Like the hitching hitching a ride into another reality thing. And it's like a creepy old woman <laughs> voice. And she's But like was it a, really his mother though? So like if it wasn't his mother, then what is the significance of the singing? Like does is it does it mean more if it's not his mother and it's just like a a fake? I have a feeling it's you know, as the kind of was is hinted at in the end of the episode that it's in the same way that uh, Zephyr has come back mm-hmm. and taken over Amalia. Some nefarious person has travelled back and taken yeah. over Haig's mum, and seeing that they had a very Norman Bates esque relationship has used that as a way to sort of exert control over the already somewhat unstable but amazing mm-hmm. Edmund Haig. And that's only going to end badly because robot zombies. Yeah, I never thought of that psycho comparison. It is kind of like that. Um, But I think also what's interesting about that is in the first half, we open on the orphanage with all of these orphans in there, all these kids. And then in the second half, we open up on Haig, um, who has just lost his mother. So he is kind of an orphan too and he goes back to his empty house which is his orphanage and he has no support or no connection to anything other than insanity mm. so these when, potential when, dead people that are talking to him through phones <laughs> his own creepy. version of the touch that we have even gotten to yet right yeah yeah uh, a little fun fact so both Rochelle Neal who plays Bonfire Annie and Ella Smith, who plays Desiree, uh, were pregnant during the filming of these later episodes. So for all you viewers, uh, notice, see if you can tell as the episodes progress if that is the case or not. Maybe any they can seal to, it well. Yeah, any excuse to stem or Rochelle Neal, I'll happily take it. <laughs> that said, one thing I found somewhat distracting, yeah, I, I watched the first few episodes and it doesn't get any better. Have you guys also noticed, and we kind of touched on it before, so much swearing. The oh, language yeah. has gotten so bad to the point they even cross that impossible line and drop a couple of C-bombs in the later episodes, <laughs> which I, I wasn't even... I mean, obviously, they got away with it in Game of Thrones because they'd already sort of thrown away any semblance of nicety. But like... I thought there were still some rules and regulations about what you can use, when you can use that level of language. And I don't know, it's, it doesn't sit well. I mean, it kind of, like, it's a bit of a left turn, but don't worry, I will 
loop back to something vaguely on point. Have you seen uh, Disenchanted on Netflix, the Matt Groening show? No. Yeah, no, don't bother. It. It's not very good. Basically, everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a great chance for yeah, Matt Groening, creator of The Freaking Simpsons, to maybe kind of, you know, loosen the strings a little, go, go a little bit crazy. And it doesn't work because it turns out when you're really good at working within those lines and just putting your toe ever so slightly over the edge, when you then are allowed to just, you know, jump right over the line, you end up being a bit lost. And it's the same thing, like Buffy, Angel, Firefly. They got right up. They, they covered some pretty explicit topics, but they never... Like they never actually, you know, swore, basically. They, they, except, well, technically in Firefly they swore, but it was in Chinese, so we didn't notice. But, like, they never quite got to the point of just using actual profanity. And it feels like now they're like, oh, now we're allowed to swear. Let's make every second word fuck, just so we can, you know, just so, <laughs> because we can. So why shouldn't we? It's like, because it's dumb and it makes you... It, it's not fitting to the theme. It's not fitting to, in my opinion, the characters. Like... It just feels unnecessary, and that annoys me. Yeah, I think the frequency of swear words might fluctuate depending on the likelihood of cancellation. <laughs> so, when that when HBO sent that email, I'm sure there were a lot more F words and C words in the script. Yeah. <laughs> I totally understand that. And frankly, my, my ears are desensitized to it, so I didn't even hear it. But maybe it happens more in the later episodes, so I'm only on episode seven. That is a wonderful point with Penance I hadn't even noticed. And I think it really, her swear word at the end really is emphatic because um, she kind of Disney-fies everything in a really fun way. She's she's like a wholesome machine. It's like when that, like she names that grotesque, robot corpse after her uncle jimmy that, that is perfect yeah. that is perfect of course she names it jimmy and then when she sees the pictures at the end and she spots oh jimmy it's like yeah that was so good she was the best <laughs> thing about the episode honestly she's the best thing about the show to be honest and there's I, and maybe I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but the, there's also something really cheerful about the the Scottish accent. There's just something upbeat about it that makes me happy. Okay, so what? So discuss the impact of uh, Amalia True's disclosure of her true origins on all of the touched at the orphanage. What did you guys think? Penance is Scottish, by the way, not Irish. Uh, Irish, not Scottish. <laughs> oh, Irish. Yeah, but uh, that the, the, the accent is very cheerful so the point is still solid yeah i was i was a little torn about the whole truth disclosure true disclosure scene because on one hand it was it was very in character for penance to just kind of spring it on her like that it was a very kind of weeden thing to do but it felt like it should have been a bigger moment and it then it was like oh so that's it okay now great bye i'm out see ya it, it felt like that's quite a major character point for her and it should have been a bigger deal, but it didn't really feel like it was. And that felt a little deflating for me. Yeah, it was a bit throwaway. Mm. Yeah. They all took it very casually. Mm. Tanisha? 
I mean, it's it's like you guys said, it was a throwaway scene. We spent the entirety of part one trying to figure out why the troubled were how they were, trying to figure out Amalia's backstory, trying to figure out what the the spores were once we finally learned about it. And it was such a big moment at the end of part one that you thought that this scene was going to be taken just as seriously. And it it really wasn't. It was just like Amalia feared it was going to be. It was going to be a bunch of people talking over each other, not taking it seriously, and just in a sense, panicking or, or making light of the situation because they didn't live it. They didn't experience it. They didn't remember everything like Amalia did to the point where she's having PTSD flashbacks about it. I mean, even one of them goes about making names for the, the robots, calling them shock troops and, you know, asking about whether or not they could communicate with the 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 aliens and making like a horror movie joke out of it it just it didn't make sense and it was so short it was kind of like an in and out kind of thing and then Amalia got overwhelmed and like had her flashbacks and had to leave but it it was it was weird I I didn't expect it to be so short and just thrown away like that I thought they were gonna make a bigger moment of it they were gonna like analyze it a little bit more talk about each other's troubled and how it connects to the people that Amalia knew in the past and things like that. It just, it didn't happen. And that was kind yeah, of disappointing. Sadly. Yeah. I think the, the big thing that it demonstrates just narratively is her neglect of everyone at the orphanage, which is again, just going back to questioning the integrity of Amalia's leadership, which was a big theme or a plot point in the first half so I get that they're continuing it in this half, but we already talked about it. I feel like there was a lot of progress made on that front that, again, was totally forgotten in this episode. And that kind of just shows its hand that, oh, this isn't real. It's just a TV show. We're writing it for the, for the plot conveniences and the characters say what they say, not because it's true to their character but because they need to say it in order for us to tell the story this way. And that, that kind of takes me out of it mm. when, you know, there's not that um, authenticity. Nice. That's, that's, a, that's an excellent way. It, it lacked authenticity. Yes. So what about the show's treatment of power, identity, and societal struggle? Uh, in this specific episode, did you think was or was not accomplished? I think it was for sure touched upon, like specifically when you're looking at the scene with, with Augie and he's kind of trying to, in this episode, really accept who he is. And you see that when he tries to embrace the ribbon, something that they've been told they shouldn't wear to protect themselves. They should kind of hide their trouble now after everything that's happened. And Augie hasn't had that moment to accept that he is troubled and what he can and cannot do. He had a, a little bit of a moment with um, penance, but not one with himself, really. It, it kind of everything happened really quickly. So now he's in this, this moment where he can just accept who he is, but society doesn't want that of him. You have people in the the square literally 
like chasing after him and he has to hide who he is once more. So that was a, a, a moment of identity that I, I did like uh, in this episode. Um, we've kind of reverted back a little bit to what we've grown to accept in part one after everything that happened at the end of part one. And now in part two, it's like we're rebuilding ourselves back up to accept who we are, our gifts. And, you know, what the crazy part about it is that Lavinia was the main source of helping that growth. And yet she was the bad guy in between all of that as well. And she's powerless. Can we talk about Lavinia for just one second? Because I did not... Okay, I, this episode had a moment that I've forgotten to mention so far that might be my favorite moment in the entire show. Okay. The, mo the moment where Lavinia is in the bathtub, because she's vulnerable, she's kind of nude uh, emotionally, it's cold. She's cold. She's dripping. She's at the mercy of her servants. And you hear like her shrieks of pain every time they're putting a new uh, piece of the uniform on her. And then it like cuts to the strong pretense image of, of who she is as Lavinia Bidlow. But like that is what I always, when I, when I still loved Star Wars, is what I dreamed they would do with Darth Vader. I wish that they would just show us uh, Darth Vader getting ready in the morning and all of his ablutions and how painful it is to be him. And then the helmet comes on and it's business. Like, that's what that scene was for me. I'm so glad you made that uh, comparison because that was my exact thought as well. When I was like, it is just like Vader being folded into his suit. Like, on the outside, it just looks like a nice dress, and you know, she's in her suit. But then you don't anything. Like she's practically armored with all these like restraints and supports to keep her from kind of keep her set up, to keep her looking kind of as strong and put together as she does. And you realize just like how badly injured she is, and how kind of how much of what she does is pretense, just to hide the fact that she you know, she really is a lot sort of uh, more vulnerable than she would appear. It was brilliant, brilliant scene. Loved every second of it. Okay, so let me ask you this. Now that we've seen Lavinia in this vulnerable position, does it absolve her from what she's done? Because we know that she's probably looking for, you know, the aliens so that she can fix herself or, or change what's happened to her. But can we forgive her for what she's doing to the troubled and and what she's done so far to the people that she's lobotomized now that we're f showing some form of like a redemption arc for her nope <laughs> i mean does luke skywalker uh hugging his uh, his, his father absolve darth vader i don't think so anybody would say that but it was a sweet moment when he took his helmet off at the end and he was a wrinkly old guy. Oh, I was I was going to say one more thing about um, the idea you mentioned that the entire character of Lavinia is pretense. And I think that was a perfect description of her because that's exactly what she's doing with the orphanage. 
she's presenting this image of herself as a philanthropist who cares about these people, but underneath it, she's hurting them and lobotomizing and enabling abuse. Um, it's really interesting how on the surface she she is, but then underneath it's all just a big wound, a big gaping wound. Um, and I guess in this example, in this analogy, Haig would be her Emperor Palpatine, if that works. It doesn't not work. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Any other thoughts? Myrtle's scene, which we've touched on a few times, but I, I don't know if it's just me, but I wasn't as hot on that scene as many people seem to be. Like, Myrtle getting all dressed up and yeah, changing her look, brilliant. Loved all of that. Her going out, like, yeah, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to you know, take one, I'm going to follow their example, I'm going to go out and be me. Awesome. Love all of that. Love the idea. The fact that it goes so wrong so fast for me struck a bit of a bum note just because it kind of feels like they're saying to her if you try to stray outside of the lines that society has drawn for you it will inevitably go horribly wrong for you and you'll end up like worse off than you were before because it was a little bit sort of stay in your box and that given the the sort of message of this show seems to be break free of the things that bind you having those bindings being so brutally reinforced for such an innocent character struck me as a little antithetical to sort of the point of the show like i'm not saying she should have gone out and you know had cake and had a wonderful day but maybe don't have her murder someone the first time she tries to step out of the the bounds she's been put into like having a bit of a fright, sure. Murder, maybe not. Bit much, just for this first time. I like the whole uh, stay in the box comment you made because it, it's it's really that. It's stay here, you will be safe. And because of that, they've made their own little kind of like prison for themselves. They can't step outside. They can only show their true selves inside of the orphanage, but nowhere else. And so now... Here's Myrtle trying to step out and be part of society, be another version of Amalia or be another version of, of Prudence. And she can't even do that because she's out of that box. She's, she's strayed too far from what society expects her to, to be. And again, this is just like another regression from what's happened since the ending of part one, because in the end of part one, it was kind of like, accept yourself, embrace yourself. They had a whole entire scene with Mary where they thought they had to go out. They had to, you know, show the world that they were there so that they could find other troubled and, and protect them. And now we're back. We're back to hide your troubled. If you can look normal out in the world, you can go out and you can live your life. But children cannot go out. Children who cannot control themselves cannot go out. And you have to be stuck here and you have to protect yourself here because it's not safe out there. And Myrtle was that, that huge example of a child going out not expecting the the violence and not expecting people to really turn on her as fast as they did. Yeah. 
I would just I I totally get what um you're saying about Myrtle. I I would just argue that I think the fact that it goes so horribly wrong, I think what they're trying to tell us is that she needs support. Like all of these characters in the orphanage, they need they need a leader, they need support, they need a parent. Because like in the beginning, the reason Myrtle wasn't allowed to come along with Amalia is because children stay inside. So she's a child, try and she tried to become an adult by wearing the costume of an of an adult and going outside with the umbrella but she's not an adult she's still just a child and she's an orphan and she has no parent because uh you know i i think it plays into the theme of first of all this can be a curse and not a gift and second of all Someone needs to replace Amalia at the orphanage as the leader, which, as we discussed, maybe it should be Bonfire Annie. I think that's, that's there's a very good chance that is the path they're going to take, and I'm fine with that. But maybe lighten up a little bit because it was a little mean. But it was great to see Lucy back. So, so this will be an interesting take to see if maybe Lucy could be that parent because. Again, if we lose Amalia as the, the true parent, then who is Myrtle supposed to turn to? Who is the or- who are the orphanage supposed to to turn to if it's not like Bonfire Annie, like we said? Because, you know, we have to remember that the reason that Lucy turned on the orphanage and, and the reason that everything had gone so bad with her is because didn't she like she she lose like a, a family member or a child? So she lost her her baby and she was a parent. And here's that gift that she had that that really just took that opportunity away from her. And there were multiple times in part one where they kind of were like, you don't know what it's like to have kids. You don't know what it's like to like be in that kind of position. And now she has this chance to redeem herself, not only with the orphanage, but with Myrtle. Because again, here is a child who is in need, who has done something so horrific. And she has that chance to save her, save her from being arrested, save her from this trauma that she is now uh, finding herself with. And it's kind of her taking that parental figure. So if Myrtle cannot get that parent figure from Amalia, will she now look to Lucy? That'll probably be interesting because it's like Lucy kind of stands for the negative aspects of being a troubled where Amalia is like the high, high and mighty kind of version. And like Pennant is the middle um, of of both of them, she's like the angel on on both of their shoulders. So it, it'll be interesting to see which route that Myrtle takes. Specifically now that Lucy has sacrificed herself for for Myrtle, if that will now push Myrtle to want to free Lucy and and be by her side and idolize her a little bit more than she did Amalia. Now that Amalia is pulling away and not part of the orphanage as much and is hiding more things. That's, that's a, that's so true. That's, that's a great point because just like you were saying, like, 
in the moment where uh, Myrtle f- finds out she accidentally killed someone, she and she begins to freak out and cry and kind of regresses to the the stature and and of a child. The person who comes and rescues her, Lucy, becomes the parent. Like like she gets rescued by her parent in that situation. Um. Yeah, and, and Lucy really was the parent of everyone at the orphanage. Sorry, I'm just repeating what you said now. Yeah. And then if we want to continue with the theme of parents, you have Haig, who who kind of needs like a a parental figure. I mean, he gets a call from his his dead mom who he's been obsessing with in the beginning of this episode and and that's kind of his parent that like sets him over the edge with her loss. So the theme of parents has has really been pushing through this season in different different ways some that are very like r- romantic and, and sacrificing in some ways and then some as haunting as as Haig's moment with his own yeah like it's kind of three of my three favorite scenes in the episode the first one was definitely the first one we see that like, we see hey kind of talking to the horrible doctor people and he goes like he gets that phone call and like you almost can't you can't hear what's being said you just see his face and you see him kind of like react i'm not really sure it was a laugh or a cry or somewhere in between but i just thought that was an incredibly strong way to open the episode and technically the season and kind of seeing that and that's kind of where he started how that led into where he is now like what do you think about Dr. Haig's character development from season one to now and where do you think that's going to lead in the future because he's definitely one of the more interesting characters for me in the series I actually really like that we're going into his his character this this part of the season because in part one you you really didn't know anything about him he was just you know a man that was lobotomizing all of the trouble that he found and and being led around by Lavinia so he didn't really have a, a background story so the fact that we're starting off this part of the season with his his background and and what happened to him before um before the trouble became troubled it's it's very interesting to see specifically because you know he was going through this mental break he he kind of was troubled in his own way and that he thought he could hear the dead through the phone and that was before we even had trouble so he he was his own little orphanage in, in a sense and then as well he is this he is this this big baddie that we're 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 going to have to deal with and and so the fact that we're we're learning more about him is is interesting and he's a very interesting character to be honest he's he gives a a new freshness to to the season so i I like that we're we're getting to know him more and, and you know what's his triggers and and so on yeah i mean like i may be slightly biased because obviously you know friend of the podcast great actor love him so I'm, I'm always happy to have more screen time for Haig but he's I mean we, we said this since day one I wouldn't be surprised if he either is like the big and well, they're setting up Lord Masson as like the big the big villain but he just screams season one villain to me I can't really see him being an ongoing evil threat whereas Haig 
he's either going to be the big bad, the final boss they have to ever defeat, or possibly I could see him very quickly, given that we've got a bit of a heel turn from Lavinia, I can see him possibly maybe not coming over to the side of the touched, but at least being a kind of semi-unwilling ally to them as things go down. So now that we're learning this this character that Haig is, do you think that he could become a baddie on his own or does he always need that like mother paternal figure? Like he had his, his own mother, you know, that had him start on this journey of like making like the connections to the dead or whatever, and maybe even reaching out to Lavinia. And then you have Lavinia also as his like parental female, um, leader that has gotten him to the position that he is now so do you think that you know with everything that's going on if he would let go of who Lavinia is and what she's done for him and create something for himself um at this point maybe Melody will be his his mother figure since she is the one that we find answering the phone at the end of the episode so maybe that's his next person to follow if Lavinia doesn't work out in the end because I do feel like his loyalties with her is shifting a bit now nah, he's full normal Bates he needs a mama yeah nah, he's uh he is not an independent character he needs a stern maternal figure to keep him in check in which case we might be screwed because she's completely insane <laughs> I, I just love how with Malady there's a bunch of people dressing up like her and running around she's she's like spreading she, like a punk virus everybody's it's all very Tyler Durden that's right yeah very fight club it's crazy to me that after everything that's happened people are taking this weird fun jokey take on Melody. I mean, people have died and they're cosplaying her. And it's it's only really been a day, really. And, you know, bodies are still in the street. Tension is still high. And people are running around the streets pretending to be Melody, like thinking this is all a game. When two seconds ago, the girl was on the chopping block. It's It's crazy. Very much so, yeah. Oh, yeah. She got martyred. She's the victor. But also, I don't know if you've seen uh, Interstellar, but actually, t- like TV time is translates differently to Earth time. Like, a, like a minute on TV is years on our planet. It's time works differently. One day, one day is an eternity. Oh, okay. So let's discuss Myrtle's adventures in the city. I think we already did discuss that, but we can button it up if we have any further comments the reappearance of lucy and the depiction of lavinia's morning routine <laughs> we've, we've sort of covered all three of those topics already just in our ramblings yeah i mean i'm i'm always happy to see more elizabeth barrington because she's amazing so it was, I, I was a little bit worried that after her sort of sign off in episode six we weren't really going to get much more of her so i'm hope i'm gl- quite glad to see her come back as quickly as she did and I think uh, Tanisha's point about her possibly being sort of a mother figure to Myrtle and possibly from there to other members of the Touched is a strong one. And that would be an excellent uh, path to take her character because, I mean, yeah, she did betray them, but you can. Like, it's kind of like the whole uh, rogue argument. Like, I'm like, oh, you don't need to get rid of your powers. Uh, they're not a curse. Like, yeah, I murder people I touch. 
it is kind of a curse. I would happily get rid of it. It's like that scene where Storm's like, nothing's wrong with us. And Rogue is literally killing people in her sleep. I wonder now what's going to happen to Lucy since she sacrificed herself in such a way for for Myrtle. Like she used her touch and she technically killed a child to cover up what Myrtle did. So they might put her on the chopping block, you know, it might be a parallel to Malady in a way so that they could use her as an example. I mean, they haven't been able to catch Malady and the police have kind of tried to cover up their failure. So they might use Lucy as a scapegoat. And then you also have to wonder what Myrtle or the orphanage altogether is going to do to, you know, protect her or save her because she has been the protector of the orphanage, the leader of the orphanage when Amalia or anyone else couldn't do it. So she is a valuable member despite what she did. I But she's not as easy to demonize as Malady is or raise hysteria about because she's just so wholesome looking and it just looks like she could bake you the like a mean apple pie. Um, I don't know. She just looks like a loving person, which which is ironic considering that She can't touch anybody. Yes, but you also have to remember that she killed a child and it died in in such a dramatic way. And she used her her touch in such broad daylight that everyone saw it. And when it it comes to a a child, people's emotions are are high. I mean, look at that, that little girl who was, you know, set in stone on hurting Myrtle and all of the touch for what they did to to her friend's family. So now that this little girl is dead, it just, it screams like accountability needs to be held. And and Lucy might be what is used for that. She's just kind of boringly prejudiced, isn't she? It's a little too black and white. She's like, I hate, I hate those people. I don't know. There's no, why does she hate them so much? We haven't really seen that. I wouldn't be surprised. You're talking about the the little girl, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she was kind of an audience insert, as it were, for the kind of people that spend a lot of time on social media and don't really have opinions of their own (laughs) and just are angry about whatever Fox News tells them to be angry about. Yeah. She is very much kind of the, the madness of crowds personified as for some strange reason, a small, quite angry girl. I don't know if you guys watched The Last of Us, but the little girl seems very similar to the other little girl who asks for vengeance after her father has died. And although she knows that her father is not a good person, she she knows that her safe haven is is not the best place and, and that, you know, it was every right for for the main character to kill her father. She still thinks like vengeance must be done. You know, something must happen. There must be consequences for the loss of her father, regardless of who he is and, and what everything. So she 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 reminds me of that. So I don't know if anyone's watched the this season of The Last of Us or have played the game and, and they know the importance of that little girl and how she continues forward um, in the next season of the show and, and in the game. I wonder if this little girl is is similar to that. Like she'll have a, a reoccurring appearance uh, for the rest of part two 
since her hatred is just so strong and we've seen her multiple times this episode. Yeah, she's easy, she's easy to hate. She's very Joffrey. I I was happy to see her get tased by an umbrella. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, the visual style, cinematography, and slightly dodgy dog special effects in the episodes? <laughs> like, do you, how did you, other than the dodgy dog, how did you think the rest of it sort of shaped up in comparison to before? And you know, that, uh, we, we we can't really just keep constantly referring it back to the past episodes. Compared to other shows that are on TV right now, how would you say the Never's visual style holds up? I I would say it's dramatically uninteresting. This yes. at least the the first episode. If we go back to last season, just the opening of the episode was so visually interesting because there was no dialogue and we were just moving with this character uh, through her day. Um, and everything was choreographed so interestingly with that narrow alleyway and the falling into the water and all that stuff. In this episode, it feels like a generic, uh, like a generic episode of television style mm. thing. It was like, we discussed the episode's visual style, and my first thought was, what visual style? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, it just, it very much felt like it was just like production line television there was no real flair no real kind of aesthetic to any of it it was all very very dirty and victorian yay i think visually this episode uh, the most important thing was amalia's flashbacks and at first it was cool you know we got to see that she was struggling and, and the importance of it but after i think like the sixth flashback i was i was kind of over it there were some moments that i thought like were key points in which the flashback really worked like when we saw it connect to dr higgs door and then we found like you know the meld between the future and the past and, and how she's she's dealing with that and then there was that parallel scene where she's walking through the alleyway and we see a connection to amalia when we first met her walking through the alleyway deciding if she was going to jump if she wasn't so it was like kind of full circle when that flashback hit and it was one of my favorite scenes, honestly. But I did feel like the flashbacks took away from, you know, the story. We had so much of it and not a lot of it really, really mattered or, or pushed the story along. So visually, it was, it was good for a couple of scenes. But, you know, for as much as they did right now, it was kind of just excessive and, and too much. Yeah, they were a little, a little frequent and a little kind of jarring is probably the wrong word because they were intended to be jarring but it's a little a little, uh, a little much yeah there were just so many of them that none of them really had any individual value it was just a kind of overall effect that they were trying to get put across um, yeah, and also I'm glad that we didn't do this uh, podcast episode a couple weeks ago when it was originally planned to be um, done because I would have had a very difficult time talking about anything other than a particular episode of Succession that came out. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that show. Nope, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. But I, I guess even have you if you guys haven't seen Barry, that's another example. But these shows are so stylistically, 
interesting and inventive and auteur and fascinating that when you watch something like this next to those, it feels pedestrian. Yeah, man, that's that's really the best description for pedestrian. It's like think back to if you compare episode seven to episode one. Remember the end of episode one where you, you first see the Galanti flying across Victorian London oh, and see the spores falling goosebumps. down. Goosebumps. Yeah, so goosebumps. I I properly had chills. I had I was welling up like this. You know, this is what I wanted to see. And I think back to episode seven, and honestly, like shock brolly to my head i couldn't think of a single notable piece of cinematography or direction to any of it well they still have the rest of the season to uh prove us wrong hopefully Mm. fingers crossed okay what about the themes of power identity and societal struggle and how those themes were developed and advanced you think that was done successfully and I think we, we kind of mentioned it before when we were talking about sort of the uh, comparable but alternate paths taken by Augie and Myrtle. Like, I think you know, that, that whole duality summed up quite a lot. Augie and Myrtle, you said? what? So what, would, what was the relationship between those two? Oh, no, the related paths, not necessarily the characters. Like, Augie with the, um, wearing the ribbon and immediately getting attacked versus Myrtle kind of dressing up and trying to be an adult and oh. it ending so badly. Kind of, there was, gotcha. there was very, there was strong themes there of kind of owning who you are or, and then trying to grow, trying to break out of the box society will put you in. And they were both kind of shut down violently for doing so. <laughs> which is certainly a message. Yeah, it's it's certainly a, a signifier, something that may or may not happen in reality uh, when people try to be who they are and get violently shut down. But it's, it's, as I sort of said at the start, it, it does feel a little bit like this is not entirely a retcon, but it's a bit of a step back and a step to the side. I have a feeling that some of the themes that you know are core to this show will build up as these episodes progress because it feels like the potential path that we were initially sort of we initially set out on has now been bulldozed and there's a new much shorter path in front of us so we i imagine they will deal with those themes as the show and the season concludes but right now it feels very much like we're kind of we're marking the path but haven't quite set foot on it just yet because they've had to establish the new norm so they can then show where all these characters are going speaking of where this series is going to go based on what we've seen so far do you have any predictions or speculations about the character arcs that we may see when we've kind of touched on it already with the growing schism in the touch so touched on it i see what i did there um, but there, I mean, there were. I mean, do do you have any ideas about what you think sort of Lord Masson or Hugo Swan are going to go through? We mentioned. Uh, I know Tanisha, you mentioned briefly Mundy in his little jaunt this episode. Do you have any particular sort of pocket theories about him? Honestly, with this episode, I probably couldn't tell you. The characters are just so different 
Well, not really, but they're they're a bit different than they were in part one. So it's kind of like the shift in power doesn't necessarily meet with the growth that their character has made in part one, since they've kind of regressed a little bit. I mean, look at Amalia. Right now, we're even debating if she is meant to be the person of power or if it should be Bonfire Annie or, or if it should be Lucy. So it's kind of... Um, shifted in some sense yeah i think he's definitely trending in the good guy direction i just now realized something when you were talking about characters being put in their place you know if if you think about it that that's kind of the running thread of this whole episode because you have myrtle being put in place for trying to be an adult you have uh, uh, Augie being put in place for trying to be a man. You have, uh, what's his name, uh, Mundy put in place for trying to seek justice. Uh, and you have, uh, uh, I swear I had one more example in my head that, oh, Hugo. Uh, Hugo gets put in place by Mundy because he, he's like, you, you don't actually... You don't actually want these parties and all these things. You're just using them for some ulterior motive. So everybody just kind of gets, I don't know, put in their place. Uh, Honestly, Mundy's character could go either way. I I feel like we are creating a a story arc for him now that he no longer has Malady as his you know, focus. He he did kind of lose his own power, if we wanna touch back on to the, the last that last part. He he lost his position in, you know, the force and now he cannot lead that search for her. He cannot bring her to justice. And even when he does try to, you know, one up the chief and, and show his his power and his importance, it kind of gets cut down pretty fast in that they were trying to expose who he is and what he does behind closed doors so at this point since he's been stripped down so much and his focus and purpose is gone i think that he's either going to turn towards the touched a little bit more like what he did when he had mary and that was his connection to them before i think he he may go towards them a little bit more now he might sympathize with them a little bit more now that he sees what is happening behind the scenes specifically with hugo he might be hugo's listening ear um especially with that relationship that the two of them have uh, he even goes to to mention that Hugo is also losing his own power. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see um, how Muddy grows this season. I kind of really like him as a character, so I'll be keeping an eye on him. However, we also have to keep in mind that we only have about six more episodes, if that, to really get into his story. So who knows how much we're actually going to get into it. I, I think that he is a good character, um, someone that we could dive into a little bit more, um, especially if he's like the touched, figuring himself out, learning to accept himself and figuring his his place in society at this point, even if it is more personal instead of like what the touched is going through, there are parallels. So it'll be it'll be interesting to to see. Uh, look at uh, 
Pettid's and Amalia's relationship, Amalia also gets put in her place. Here she is, you know, at the end of episode seven, breaking down. She finally can't take it. She's, she's coming apart at the seams. And Penance sits her down and says, get it together. You are a soldier. You have a job to do. You cannot fall apart right now. You have things that need to be done. And it, it, it puts her back together. And it's one of the most important, strongest scenes of this episode. So it is something to highlight that she as well has to be put in her pace. Somebody who's had so much say, so much power, and now she is vulnerable and having to be told to get it together. That's true. Yeah. Penance puts Amalia in her in her place. But in a, in a much more kind of loving way than the others did. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, if you think about it, at the very end of this episode, even Haig gets put in his place by Malady. And there's our there's our symbolism and our our theme. Get in your place. Check mark. Uh I have one more thing that I I want to happen. I know it probably won't happen, but um there was a there was a line of dialogue that Pennant said that I really loved. Uh, and my notes are frozen, so I can't access them. But um, I think it was nonviolent objects of confusion and defense in rep- in reference to the weapons she's building. Yeah. Uh, oh, I love that. I love that line of dialogue so much. And what I want to happen, where I want the show to go, is I want her to like. I want her to have a, a Manhattan Project moment where like she it becomes she becomes the Oppenheimer of the show like I am become death destroyer of worlds she's the reason the future is so fucked up that's what I want the show to be about and the Galanthi like tells Amalia she has to go back in time and kill penance terminator style and then she like Amalia has to kind of struggle with the mission of, oh, the reason I'm alive is to kill the person I love because they're going to build the machine that destroys the future. And then I just think that goes so well with Penance's name. Like her name is Penance. So clearly in order to need Penance, you need to have done something wrong. So I think she is the innocent one who opens Pandora's box in some kind of way. That's what I want to happen. That is my new favorite theory, and I will now be disappointed if that doesn't happen. So (laughs) thanks for that. I also feel like Penance as well has, for this entire season, been like the good guy, been the angel, been the person that you, you go to when you want to find the right way to do things, not Amalia's way to do things. So if she does become evil, that would be great for her character especially because you do see that there is a lot of growth in her at least in this episode for part one to the point where you know she even swears this episode she has to be the one to be the bigger person for amalia this episode she's had key moments where she's she's grown she's experienced death she's asked amalia how do I deal with this? How do I cope with these losses in this episode? And if she can't, maybe that'll be, you know, her breaking point. That does 
cause her to be evil. You know, she, she can't put that PTSD aside. She, she can't let go of the mistakes that she made in, in part one and, and it festers in part two. So it, it could happen. And I would love to see it, to be honest, but it would be great for her character growth. I, I am seeing a little bit of it now and, and I would love to see more of it going forward. Totally. The dark side. And if you know any of uh, uh, Whedon's work in the past, you know character transformation is something he he generally does very well, and he uh, generally does do it to the adorable scientist. So exactly, yeah, like Fred and Angel, um, and Wesley. He started off as this bumbly guy, comic relief, and then he ended the show this depressed, dark, uh, brooding character. So we don't have a listener letter to share this week, but we do have a listener voicemail sent in by Fred who hails from the Netherlands, or as we jokingly refer to it, the Neverlands. Uh, we couldn't help ourselves take a listen and hear what Fred has to say. Hello, Laura and Chirac and all listeners to the Nevers podcast. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for the Nevers season one Episode 7. Yeah, finally, we could watch the next episode. I was so afraid it never would happen, but it did. And I'm very happy that you are back and are going to podcast about this second part of the first season. This is the first time I give audio feedback to your podcast, although um, some people might know me from other podcasts. Actually, also one other the Nevers podcast by Sci-Fi TV Rewatch Dave and Wayne, where I did the first six episodes as an audio feedback contributor. I really, really love the way you dissect these episodes. Also loved the thing you did in between about Firefly. You actually made me rewatch the whole series. So I could nicely listen to your podcast. And of course, Firefly and the film Serenity is something you can watch again and again. Okay, coming to this seventh episode, part two of season one. Well, I really think it's a part two, although you could argue that the sixth episode of the first part also belongs to it, because from that episode on, we know there is a future part of this series. On the other hand, you could say episode 6 really belongs to the first part. And now the second part, the big change there is that the whole group of Touched knows what Amalia True really is. (laughs) Truly is. I think there is much to say about this episode. And because this is the first time I give feedback... I don't know what your time limit for audio feedback is, but I will uh, behave and take my highlights out of it. First, there is the big change, I think, in Amalia. She really becomes more and more sever, and that's not crazy because she gets these very intense flash, what is it, backwards, forwards... She is really more and more going to behave like Sever, the stripe from the future. And then we go immediately to the, the second topic, that in Hake's house she picks up the phone and hears another person that took the trip to the past. Are we just in a sim? I don't believe it. Or actually, I don't want to believe it. 
But obviously, she's not alone there from the future. I really wonder if we look back to the first six episodes, if we got any hints that there is somebody else there. This is the first time. But then I always wonder, how did the writers construct this and put some little sparkles of that in a previous episode? And then when you look back, then you suddenly see it. I couldn't notice any thing where I got a hint that there could be a second person from the future over here in 1899. I really wonder if you noticed something in the first six episodes where you thought uh, there could be a second person from the future over here. Okay, I think my time's up a little bit. There were so many other things to talk about. Myrtle, I really felt for her. Lucy Beck, the whole story of Frank Mooney and his new boss, and Lord Swan, a little less interesting, although I really wonder what will happen to the Melody story. Lavinia and Augie Bidlow, really impressive that Lavinia has to get up out of her bed every morning like this, really feel for her, and it shows how tough this lady is. And then there is the whole story about the half-automated people and even dogs and the autopsy that Dr. Cousins does and many other topics to talk about. But I will leave that to you. I'm quite certain that this podcast will be uh, almost two hours or something like that. Okay, that will be all for now. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. So uh, we just listened to a friend of the podcast, Fred. Uh, what did you guys think about what he said? I liked when he he questioned who could possibly be the person who also came with Amalia, like who's the other person from the future. Because throughout this episode, although we had moments where, you know, that moment when um, the old lady's talking to Amalia, like, did you think you were the only one? I completely forgot, <laughs> forgot about that. Like, I completely forgot that we were supposed to be looking for who could be the other person. And so I never actually thought about who it would be. I would assume that maybe it's one of, like, the board members or one of the royalty members that, like, Lord Mason knows. Um, but but I don't know. I, I don't think we've had any hints to who could be the other person yet. Well, whoever it is, it has to be, they have to be the one on the other end of that phone line, right? Yeah. Because yeah, they that, know. That, that's the way I saw it. I, I, when she said, do you think you were the only one that came back? I didn't think she meant one of the other characters we've already met is from the future as well. I thought she meant someone else had come back from the future with her and was now possessing um, Haig's mother. But actually, that, that's just the kind of freaky twist that, I know Whedon would definitely throw I don't know about the new showrunners, but. The kind of they like they lead you to think that she meant Ed, Edwin's mother was from the future, and actually it turns out that like the reason Penance is so smart is because she's actually a scientist from the future or something. That would be that would be quite a twist. I mean, if you look at what was it episode six is when we got to see the people who like died in in saving the Galanti and and you know probably were with Amalia before they got sent to this. Um, back day. So it would probably either be remember the 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 guy the um leader of the he wasn't the leader of the free spirits that they had um 
that they had handled because he had tried to kill the Galanthi and they had stopped him for that. Like, I feel like he would be the one to have come back as well. Yeah. And, like, actually remember what happened compared to everyone else had, had died, like, brutal deaths trying to save the Galanthi and he was the only one that was like, the Galanthi has to go. So it, it would make sense that he, he would be the one that remembers and, and came with her. I could definitely see that. His hatred was enough to keep his spirit alive and force him back in time like Amalia was ever did. Exactly. And if he closes the portal, he's already in like a good timeline where he would survive and and he has like the good food and good air. Like he doesn't really need to go back and he can continue. If he's of high, high status, he can continue like his, his mission from where he is. Honestly, that's what I was thinking, because if you were able to hitch a ride back to Victorian England, where the air is still breathable, why not just sit back and sip a mimosa? Like, why <laughs> even get involved in any subterfuge? Um, although it would be funny if it was like tall girl, like if Primrose out of nowhere was from the future. <laughs> it was me the entire time. <laughs> or maybe that's why... Uh... Myrtle can't talk properly because jumping back in time screwed with the speech centers of her brain. Right, I think that's it. It'd, but... it'd be good if they if they if they brought in a new character. I think I think it it would it would spice it up a little bit. What if it's Angry Mother. Girl? Oh, ooh. oh, yeah. That's why she's so angry. She's she hates she the knows. because she's traveled back in time to mess them up. Yeah, yeah. That would make sense to why her her character was so important this episode, and why we saw so much of her. <laughs> and she's not dead too; she only got shot, which means we might see her again. Angry girl is a time traveler. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> what about the the introduction of Haig's mother? That would be a new character introduction, I'm assuming. But wasn't she like? Wasn't she dead though? Isn't isn't she, didn't she pass away? So. So it's like, how yeah. would she officially come back? Unless he, like, reanimated her. <laughs> Do you guys think the show would really go supernatural and it would say that this really is a voice from beyond? They would have had opportunity, but I don't think they would would do it. Yeah, I can very much see it as it's not actually a voice from the beyond. It's a voice from the future calling back and using, like, I don't know, AI, whatever, to make it sound like Haig's mom just to mess with him because they know he's a pivotal figure in what's going down. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder if they were the reason that he, he got in contact with with Lavinia because he had no connection to... Because in the beginning of the episode, they, they tossed him from the medical society of the mm. royal family. So he had no connection to people like Lavinia or her brother. So I wonder if they have been puppeting him the entire time and was like this is the person to go to this is what yeah. you have to do next this is how you you know make these robot guys this is how we win exactly yeah. that would be an interesting power reversal because as it stands um no pun intended it seems like Haig has the upper hand over Lavinia yeah seems like he's kind of pulling her strings a little bit because he knows so much. And that would make sense if you go back to her bathing scene. She's literally relying on like people to like lift her and move her. And here Haig is 
getting doing the same getting thing. the messages getting get... it's and all you know, coming that, together i mean that that harkens back perfectly to a line in the pilot uh where augie was talking to hugo about his relationship with lavinia and um uh he was like uh hugo was like uh she pushes you around a lot when really he's the one pushing like, her around yeah yeah so it seems like I don't know what connection I'm making there. But that's <laughs> something that you're you not quite sure what it is yet. It's like we think Lavinia yeah, I'll, has I'll, the power. We think that she's the one that does everything, but it is really just like the people in her life that she thinks she's puppeteering. It's like the other way around. Like they're the reason for her 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 movement and transportation. There's the reason she's even connected to the Galanthi and have been able to find it underneath the ground. And she just thinks that she is in control of everything in the little control that she has seeing as she can't even move a majority of her body but it's actually the other way around i feel like like with that thought in mind like i feel like something might happen that like really makes her feel powerless that she'll like turn to amalia and be like i messed up this is what's going on help me like <laughs> we've lost the plot <laughs> i would quite like to see a, a some uh reconciliation between Amalia and Lavinia because they had some great scenes together. I need more of that. Like the the scene in the in the institution when like they first meet each other. Yeah. That's a good like power power balance that we see between the two of them. I think I think that's gonna be in the very last episode, I think Amalia is gonna be the Luke Skywalker taking the mask off of Lavinia mm-hmm. and uh you know realizing who she is but also loving her mm. in a perverse combination and that most yeah, kind of, of redeeming her it'll probably for amalia it'll probably just be like another person she failed or something and want to try to save at the same time okay so i think we're uh, at our final thoughts so overall, did you guys enjoy this episode? Would you like to quantify your enjoyment on a one to ten scale? And if so, uh, what would you what would you rate it? Um, overall, it was <clears throat> very much an episode of television. There were characters there, and they <laughs> delivered dialogue, more or less. Um. It was a series of frames that yes. uh, it was. It was very much the seventh episode of the series. <laughs> <laughs> um, Moving images uh, yes. happened. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But ironically, I was not moved. What would What would you yeah, rate it though? Maybe a six. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I. I think I would rate it maybe like a seven, seven point five. And honestly, I think it's because I haven't. I stopped watching the nevers after like the last episode of episode six so to see it again i was just like oh great like i've missed these characters i've missed like the storyline and i did like that it it tried to continue right where we left off although it seemed a little bit more fast-paced in that um ability but I, I did like that we tried to to pick it up where we where we left off. Um, I did miss seeing Malady a little bit more for the first episodes, specifically seeing how episode six ended. I thought we were going to see her a lot more, so the fact that we didn't was disappointing. 
Uh, the the flashbacks, I feel, if they continue for the rest of the series, like the season, is going to get annoying pretty fast. But I do like it's just a different I look at at Amalia's powers, maybe. But a seven point five, well, gentle <laughs> for like a a first a first coming back episode. You know, I feel like you always have to give uh like when a show comes back, you always have to give it like the first three episodes to really see if it's going to to be the season that you were looking for. So I'm hoping that it does like steadily get better and we dive a little bit more into like the actual plot and less actiony. If we're if we're going to start making like if we're going to start making like actual arcs for like Mundy and, and Hugo and and every other character that we have in the orphanage in these next six episodes that we have, I think there needs to be like key choices to be made. Um that help us do that (laughs) that I'm not seeing in this first episode but I'm hoping it it, it gets it gets better but just seeing all these characters faces again after so long I'm just like oh I'm so sad you were canceled (laughs) you had such potential um and I feel like the actors themselves really like went back right into it you know they they took their character back on so easily and the fact that we're losing them is just it just it's heartbreaking so and a mm. 7.5 for a, a comeback episode that's that's a very uh a charitable um uh review <laughs> as a as a as a viewer uh and I, I agree with that you know i i i i do give things a forgiveness period uh it's the first episode back maybe maybe it'll get more compelling as time as it winds down um, I, I think, uh, if my, if I had not just seen Succession and Barry, my standards wouldn't be as high as they are. Uh, but overall it was, uh, it was a good time. It was a good time on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. A good time, not a long time, seeing as we only have six episodes. <laughs> right. Well, we're here for a good time, not a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So any any favorite quotes? Now's the time to share it. Probably Penis's at the last at the end of the episode is my favorite. Her her speech to Amalia was prime stuff. Yeah, that was the best part. Yeah, agreed. Like I just love how she was like they were yeah, you know, she sort of completely collapsed and she was just giving giving it the hard sell, like, come on, soldier, get up. And then once she the moment that really sold it for me was when she then saw that Amalia was okay and was like, stood up so all right, I'm back to being Amalia, you know, butt on the suit. And then Penance was like, oh, thank God, you're being normal again. And she's like, I can be normal as well. Jesus, that was was too much serious for me. I've got to go back to being nice again. That that was a a really perfectly done scene. And not particularly a quote, but yeah, like that whole thing was great. My favorite quotes were everything that Myrtle said. (laughs) I think it really struck home with me. I I think I heard a little Italian in there, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I I heard some uh, Hindi in there. and I'm Indian, so I, I kind of understood some of it. Was she saying anything important, or no, not really? When they first showed Myrtle like speaking in d- different tongues, I was listening for like my language. I was like, I can hear it. It's almost there, a little bit of French. I saw it, <laughs> so I, I like that they did incorporate like a big range of different languages for her. I thought that was great for every listener that's like watching the show it would be like, oh, I know that one. That's me, you know. A little petite child Myrtle. I do. 
I don't know if it's just me, but I can't help but connect her as a representation of the Tower of Babel. I just feel like that's what she is. Because also, we see in the first part of the season, in Amalia's vision of the future, Myrtle is like a very important character. Yeah. She's the mouthpiece of the Galanthi. And and I I think that's what humanity was trying to do biblically. They were trying to build a structure tall enough and arrogant enough to reach God, uh, which was then put like God put humanity in its place for building the Tower of Babel. And that's the reason we have the confusion of language, because we were put in our place in the same way that Myrtle seems to be put in her place in this episode. That, that that's the that's the tagline. I I like that like what you said about her being like the mouthpiece of the Galanthi because if you look at the last episode of episode six, um, in the future when they're explaining like why the spores are who they are, it's like so we can be one with the Galanthi and understand the Galanthi, but no one really could, and only Myrtle can now from what we know, but she can't even say what's actually happening until she has that true connection with the Galanthi. So it's it's very interesting to see. Everyone thought they had a connection with the Galanthi, but the only person that really does is Myrtle, and she can't even say what that connection is, in English at least. And you know, as far as character arcs going forward, I hope that Lucy goes kind of vigilante Batman, just oh, with yeah. the cloak over her I, head. I always hope for a bit of vigilante justice. Right, because she basically is Bruce Wayne, right? But the parent version, she's like if Bruce Wayne's mother uh, saw her son die in that alley and decided to become Batman. That's basically it. It's a there's a universe called Flashpoint where Thomas Wayne becomes Batman and Martha Wayne becomes the Joker after losing Bruce. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's a super messed That's up crazy. timeline. And it's a lot of fun. Absolutely, I would be 100% behind them doing kind of a Flashpoint style you know, like sort of arc for Lucy. There's so much potential for Lucy, and I feel like we've touched yeah, on like it's... different ranges of where she could go. So they have so much they could do in six episodes. They could do a lot with Lucy. They could do a lot with Penance Myrtle. All right. Well, uh, once again, thank you for everybody for listening. If you are, uh, and if you hear my voice, then you obviously are listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and YouTube. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HBO The Nevers. And we're on, uh, uh, oh, sorry. And also, we have a Twitter account called at The Nevers Podcast without an A. Any comments and questions you can send to The Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're listening to us on Apple, once again, leave a rating or a review. Uh, even if you're not listening, head over there and show us some love by leaving a positive rating. And I want to thank uh, Taig and Tanisha for joining us today. Would you like to plug anything, share your socials, give any advice? <laughs> you could probably find all my socials under Show Talk Podcast. Um, or if you want to send me emails, you could go to showtalkpodcast at gmail.com and and that's where I talk about all the shows that I listen to. It's probably going to be similar to what we talk about now, The Nevers, um, anything Marvel, Supernatural. If it's there, I'm probably watching it and podcasting it. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Hound Reacts, which is a channel I probably need to change the name of for obvious reasons. And uh, if you want to hear me talk more about TV shows, I have a bi-weekly stream that's starting in about five minutes on Twitch with Laura from this same show, which is uh, tangential underscore anime. We're on uh, Twitch and Instagram, I believe, and YouTube. So you can see me there. And uh, I am Chirag, and you can you can find me uh, in a polyamorous relationship with all my laptops. I've just I have too many laptops. All right, until next time. Bye. See you around. Bye. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. I spent the last couple days trying to, like, remember what happened <laughs> in part one one last parting shot i think Tubi sounds like a streaming service for tully tubby's content <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyways <laughs> <laughs>